it's just inherently tricky to plant something like carrot seed <laughs> into a you know a non-tilled soil surface it's just like not gonna really work and it could definitely make more sense for um, a squash or a cucumber or a seed that is larger that you can kind of you know get in there and have a good 12 18 inch spacing between it and your next plant but if you're trying to do salad mix or baby arugula like you just inherently need some some fine soil to put your seeds in and get good germination Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Emily Oakley, a Real Organic Project farmer and board member from Eastern Oklahoma, and she's a former National Organic Standards board member. My interview with Emily is an excellent preview of what we'll touch upon in our upcoming virtual symposium, which starts this coming Sunday, February 26th. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of how organic farmers grow their own fertility to replace the need for unsustainable inputs. We're going to talk about the difficulties of implementing no-till for organic vegetable and grain farmers at scale. And we're going to talk about some experiments that some mid-scale vegetable farmers are doing to reduce tillage. How can no-till farming at scale work without the use of herbicides. For a lot of people within our good farming movements, these are touchy subjects, but we promise you that what we've learned and what we'll share is in the spirit of unifying behind the shared principle that herbicides, pesticides, and highly soluble fertilizers are the main source of our problems, and we must stop subsidizing their use. You can get tickets to our online event at realorganicsymposium.org, which includes author Michael, Michael Pollan, farmer Elliot Coleman and chef Dan Barber, along with Emily Oakley and many, many others. We're going to have excellent breakout discussion groups and a lively chat as the footage rolls. I hope you'll join us. Now let's return to my conversation with vegetable farmer Emily Oakley. I'm here with Emily Oakley for the Real Organic Podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, Lindley. So a couple weeks ago, we had Mike on the Farmer to Farmer, and he described how you all are farming and how you're attempting to grow all your own fertility on the farm. And there were probably 75 farmers there. And that's a really big deal to get farmers to show up for any Zoom event. And we just got this Farmer to Farmer thing started. So farmers are really excited and interested in what you're doing. And so a lot of people don't necessarily understand when they're looking for food that growing your own fertility is even something to look for or ask. Why is it so important to you that you're growing your own fertility on your farm? Well, it's definitely still very much a work in progress because <laughs> um, this will be our third season of really growing 90% of our fertility. But the reason it's important to us is just thinking about the inputs that we would otherwise be bringing onto the farm in the form of fertility and where those inputs come from because they all have a story and it's not always a beautiful story. Um, 
and if you dig deeper into a lot of those inputs, things can start getting a lot more complicated. And since the reason that we're farming organically in the first place is out of primarily a concern for environmental issues um, and social justice, those two things can really come together when you start looking at inputs. So it's important to us to think about the impact of our farm, not just on this land that we're growing on, but on the broader environment. So would you be able to describe fairly briefly, I mean, Mike did it in an hour, so there's a lot to this, but just how are you attempting to grow your own fertility on your farm? Yes, so I, I wanna be super transparent that we did apply chicken manure for a number of years when we first bought our land. Um, and we've applied lime to raise our naturally low pH and some other micronutrients, just because we have not the kind of glacial amazing deposits of the Midwest, but just very old weathered soils that are not very naturally fertile. Um, so we had a field that we we're kind of turning from one use, actually previously blueberries, into crop production. And there was a weird transition time a couple of years ago when we were doing this, maybe 10-ish years ago at this point, when the field um, was coming out of a winter cover crop. It was too soon to plant a summer cover crop. So we were like, all right, we've got all these Austrian winter pea seeds. We're just going to go ahead and quickly throw these in. We know they're going to grow fast and it'll cover the soil. It won't be a ton of biomass, but it'll give us some fertility. And then it was a very lush cover crop. It was in there for like not more than two months. And we needed to do a soil test anyway on this field. So we did a soil test once we'd incorporated the pea cover crop and we were like blown away by the results of the soil test in terms of the nitrogen there. So, I mean, we'd always known that cover crops were doing more than just, you know, protecting the soil from wind erosion or water erosion and, you know, providing organic matter as that cover crop breaks down and knew it was providing nitrogen and, of course, like bringing up nutrients deeper in the soil. But we, we had never really had evidence for how much nitrogen a cover crop could produce, especially obviously a leguminous cover crop because it's fixing atmospheric nitrogen for free into the soil. And that really got us thinking because we'd, we'd long since wanted to move away from using chicken manure um, just because we felt like we were kind of turning our fields into a dumping ground for this waste product for industrial chicken processing or growing facilities. And even though like, you know, we've had the manure tested and had our fields tested and, you know, there's not arsenic in it or, or other things that we were able to test for, it still just felt philosophically uh, incompatible with why we were farming and how we were farming. And we wanted to get away from that like manure dependent treadmill or outside input dependent treadmill and um, so that that experience with the pea cover crop got us really seriously thinking that it would be possible to try to grow a large percentage of our fertility with the cover crops and I mean we did build up our soil with using chicken manure like I, I'm not gonna lie like there's potassium and phosphorus in there and you know when we've had 
boron deficiencies. We've applied a little bit of boron and you know other micronutrients as needed, but we didn't want to just take our soil test results and try to bring in all these external inputs, even though they might be organic, like you know blood meal, bone meal, etc., or mined minerals, and try to you know get our soil nutrients levels up to this so-called desired level based on the soil test results and the crops that we're growing. So we just like decided to take this leap of faith to see how it would work out with our yields um, and the health of our crops to to move away, you know, first from manure, which was a while ago, then from you know other sort of NPK and micronutrient fertility sources. Knowing though, of course, we would apply something if we, you know, had a deficiency that was was, you know, going to compromise the quality of our crops, and then move to, all right. So we've got this sort of stable level of nutrients at this point, and nitrogen is the one that is really the most difficult to to source, and also the ones that the plants are or the the nutrients that the plants are most likely to be absorbing in large quantities season by season. So uh, we started kind of experimenting with different fields. And um, as we got more confident that we didn't need to side dress the whole field or apply on the whole field pelleted soybean meal, which was kind of like our first main um, like pacifier slash, you know, sort of helping tool that we used when we stopped applying any kind of additional outside inputs and we'd already stopped applying the manure. Um, and once we kind of saw that, all right, well, we're applying this pelleted soybean meal to the entire field, but really like not in large quantities, like how effective is this really in terms of delivering nitrogen to the plants? And we're applying it to the entire field. We're not just like side dressing right at the plant roots or at the base of the plants. Um, let's go ahead and just see what it's going to do if we don't apply anything. So, so we did. We had like a perfectly fine, successful year. We did notice that applying um, like a small amount of side dressed pelleted soybean meal to our long term crops, which are really just some tomatoes, peppers, and eggplant seem to help kind of give them a boost, especially if we have like a cold period during the spring or if flea beetles are attacking the eggplant, you know, something that kind of helps give those crops a little bit of just energy reserves and nutrient reserves. So we have noticed that that, that tends to be pretty helpful, but we're starting our third season um, with just going on the cover crops and it is obviously like third season is a small number it is a work in progress there's not necessarily like the jury's still very much going to be out on the long-term benefits of this but even if we still need to bring in small amounts at some point in the future i think we feel really confident that growing enough cover crop material and giving enough of a fallow period within the fields and good rotations is probably going to allow us or permit us to to at least be aiming towards a majority 
of our fertility from, from the cover crops at this point. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, actually. I mean, and I know that farmers think about these things in such a different way than eaters tend to because, um, you know, the, the fact that even that's so important to us, this growing our own fertility and no inputs as a form of sustainability, I don't even think eaters even begin to know to ask that kind of question. <laughs> and, and growers see this as the gold standard. So that's why so many people showed up uh, to that talk. And we're going to point everybody to that talk because Mike did an amazing job at describing your system. Could you briefly describe how it works? Many people are seeing yep. tillage, like no-till, as the gold standard right now. And what we're saying is, is that no, actually growing your own fertility is what we should be striving towards, whether it's a perennial system that doesn't require tillage or um, you know, a vegetable system that has so far needed tillage in order to grow your own fertility. So, so briefly describe that system, how it works, how are you doing this? Yeah, so we take our entire fields and think of them as four separate areas. And we have spring crops and we have summer crops each year. So there will be two of those four fields in cash crops in a season. And then the other two will be in a fallow cover crop for the entire year. And that rotation will take place uh, so that if we start out, for example, um, with a spring cash crop on a field, then the summer of that growing season, it'll have a summer cover crop. Then it'll go into a fall winter cover crop. And then the whole next year, it's in a fallow cover crop. So it'll, those cover crops will just cycle or mirror the similar cover crops on the, the cash crop side. So they'll go to a spring, or, you know, kind of late spring, early summer cover crop fallow, and then back to the winter cover crop, which is applied in, or, you know, sown in the fall. And then, it would go to a summer cash crop. So it wouldn't go back to a spring cash crop. And that's where the rotation part comes in. And then after that summer cash crop, it would go to the fall winter cover crop to um, like another year of the same cover crop fallow. And then when it was time for it to go back into a cash crop, it would go back into a spring crop, but ideally a different type of spring crop. You know, if it had been in lettuce or, you know, you know, something that broccoli had something that we're extracting the tops of, maybe it would go into potatoes or carrots or onions uh, because the planting periods are different, the nutrient requirements are different, the insect pressure is different. So that's sort of the general idea of, you know, cash crop to cover crop to cover crop to cash crop back to cover crop. And Emily, there are so many different uh, ways to deal with cover crops. Could you talk about the different systems, um, you know, to terminate the cover crops and, and how effective they've been for organic and then how chemical farmers are terminating their cover crops and, and why there's so much confusion around this, this sexy kind of no-till um, wave that's happening. Um, but but let's, let's just first start with how, how are people terminating their cover crops? How are you doing it? And how, how are chemical farmers doing it? And then, and then maybe even, you know, some experiments with this, uh, attempting to do, um, the roller crimper, right. Which is an organic potentially way to terminate the cover crops. But, um, you know, how widespread is this? Have you, have you seen this working, uh, in the field? Cause I've, tr I've traveled quite a bit 
and I, I see people, you know, trying to make it work, um, but I don't see it in, um, in actual application very much. So I don't know how much you understand about why it might not be working, why you're not using yeah. that, but uh, talk a little bit about how you terminate the cover crops. Yep. So um, for all of our cover crops, both the fall, winter, and then the summer cover crop, in an ideal world, we would get enough growth. Let's let's just talk about the summer cover crop, um, uh, especially the sorghum sudan grass, but also the sun hemp and the sunflowers and you know the cow peas, etc. But it's the taller stuff that is giving you tremendous amount of vegetative growth. So in an ideal world, we'll get enough growth that towards the end like 75 percent of the way through the growth period we could mow it high which would start the process of you know kind of cutting it up chopping it up and and getting it down on the ground but would also then stimulate additional root and top vegetative growth for a couple more weeks before we intend to actually mow it to kill it um so then let's say a few more weeks pass we get a little bit more growth then we'll flail mow it and um the flail mowing it does a really good job of chopping it up really finely we've experimented with brush hogging but you know the amount of vegetative matter that's large is really high and it tends to windrow it um, into these like little channels or little furrows which then just makes it harder to distribute. But if we if we're able, you know, to do that that two-tiered mowing, it is really easy on that second mowing to mow low enough to terminate it. And you know, it will depending upon the season, if it's, you know, ideal growing conditions and you wanted to leave it, I mean, you could leave it and it would grow back, but in our case, we will then rototill it in which we have to do, um, or we'll disc it in, um, depending upon you know how much vegetative matter there is. But we've got to till it in in order to be able to pr plant our fall winter cover crop. We've talked about, and I think we're gonna try to experiment this year with just buying a lot, like maybe double the amount of winter cover crop seed and coming in with our, our grain drill, which is how we sow the cover crop, and experimenting at least in you know maybe part of the field with directly seeding into the untilled but mowed cover crop matter. Um, so we'll see how that works. I mean that's like that's the fun part of this for me, and that's where I get all like geeked out and excited because you're constantly trying to think of ways to use what you have, not buy you know a five ten thousand dollar note till grain drill um, to plant a cover crop and you know see if there are ways that we can use what we've got to improve the system. However, the reason that tillage on some level is typically helpful between the summer cover crop, for example, and the fall winter cover crop is that if there are any weed seeds that have germinated underneath for example, carpet grass is something that we have here that can kind of find a niche with the smallest amount of light and, and, and might get established before the cover crop has really gotten going and might just be sort of barely alive, but under there. The tillage is an organic means 
of dealing with weed pressure. And is it the best means? It's not if you're using it all the time, but I don't actually think that it's detrimental in a large sense if you're using it infrequently and very strategically. Um, for example, at a time when you're already needing to till. So the roller crimpers have been used to varying degrees of success um, from what I understand listening to other farmers, especially in like the southern region where we are, who have attempted you know, varying forms of low till, I think is what they would all really call it rather than no till. And the roller crimper works, um, but we also just live in what feels like the subtropics sometimes during the summer and even into the fall. So I think, you know, the tricky part with that is getting actual termination through the roller crimper. And, you know, folks on larger farms have been doing all kinds of amazing experiments with, you know, no-till grain drills and organic systems. And I think, you know, it's just inherently tricky to plant something like carrot seed <laughs> into a, you know, non-tilled soil surface. It's just like not gonna really work. And it could definitely make more sense for um, a squash or a cucumber or a seed that is larger that you can kind of, you know, get in there and have a good 12, 18 inch spacing between it and your next plant but if you're trying to do salad mix or baby arugula, like you just inherently need some, some fine soil to put your seeds in and get good germination. And I think another tricky part for the no-till, especially for vegetable growers, is the spring soil temperature. So what farmers that we've spoken with have noticed is that if you've got a lot of cover, from a no-till cover crop in the spring. You know, it's it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's a mulch and it is preventing sunlight from warming up your soil temperatures. And those spring weeks uh, are, are really, really critical and they make a huge difference in terms of when you get your crop in the ground and when you start to harvest and the volume that you'll eventually harvest. So. You know, there is another reason, especially on the vegetable farmer side, for, for frankly, you know, beds, just till beds that you need to farm into. So when consumers hear about no-till, you know, especially when it's not in an organic context, they, they often don't realize that the way that those farmers are getting around the fact that the cover crop still wants to keep growing and and weeds still do find their way in because they live in the soil for a long time, those weed seeds, and they blow in from the perimeter. Um, sometimes they come in with your seed. It just depends on the situation. Um, so those farmers who are you know, not using a crimper, who are not using light tillage, are going to have to use something else, and that's where herbicides come in. So they are applying, in some cases, you know, great deal of herbicides to kill the cover crop, which feels so contrary to the original goal of growing cover crop, which is, you know, building and fostering your soil life. 
So, you know, I think if consumers hear no till, it's just two words, what's behind that? And that's where, you know, the, the job of farmers is to try to communicate, especially those of us that have a relationship with our, our customers to kind of communicate, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean on our farm for how we do what we do? Emily, so much there. I was so excited because I had never heard of the idea of, um, you know, between the summer and the winter cover crop, the idea of being able to drill in the cover crop, because you're right, you're not seeding carrots or or lettuce, like you said, that might be an area to be able to skip a tillage pass. And I just think it's so incredible that you're thinking these things through. It's amazing. It was so much a part of the organic movement is farmers figuring this stuff out, right? And there's so much research dollars, uh, you know, from the chemical companies in academia trying to figure out, okay, you know, what rate do we do this chemical? And, you know, does it control this pest? And here are the organic farmers in all of these different climates are experimenting, trying to reduce their tillage. And um, it's just, it's so much to me, a part of what the organic movement has always been is this idea of continuous improvement. And unfortunately, it's really had to come from the farmers and less from, from academia, where we really could use some help trying to figure all this stuff out. I'm hoping that from here we can talk honestly when the Real Organic Project began, um, Rock Regenerative Organic Certification was already in existence. And and we talked about joining forces. We were actually asked to to be their third tier. Just if we're real organic, you know, uh, you can start at the third tier for Rock and then work our way up to silver gold. Would you talk about, you were one of the most vocal people against that idea. (laughs) Would you talk about um, why? that that didn't seem possible to, to join movements there? Yeah, I mean, I, I admire what they're trying to do by creating different levels that farmers can aspire to. And, and they were very clear that it was an aspirational label. Um, and that's great if you can eventually aspire to the gold standard. And I felt that the way that the standards were written at the time, um, especially for vegetable production, meant that like 99% of all organic vegetable farmers, certainly that I knew, would never be able to attain the gold standard because of the tillage factor. Um, And so they were just placing such a heavy emphasis on the negativity of tillage. And it was, it felt like a kind of punitive punishment for the vegetable farmers that use it. Um, For example, if you're growing orchard crops, you know, it's pretty obvious that you're not going to be using a lot of tillage and, you know, you can make it to the gold standard pretty quickly. Um, so it just created this like pitting crops against different crops as to who was like doing it better or, you know, helping the planet more. And at the time I, you know, I sent various different comments, but suggested that, you know, it could still be aspirational but instead of fixating so strongly on tillage maybe there could be a host of goals let's say like five to seven goals that the farmer wanted to achieve and maybe they wanted them to achieve you know five out of seven to reach the gold standard but include in there things like energy sourcing or the amount of land that the grower is 
adding to biodiversity habitat, the land not tilled that the farmer owns and manages for wildlife, water consumption, you know, all these other areas that are extremely important in the broader context of our environmental footprint but give us a little more flexibility for um, the fact that vegetable production is very different. It felt like those standards had been written by someone who um, never worked on a vegetable farm. <laughs> yeah, talk about the importance of farmer-led with Real Organic Project. I mean, now that Rock has changed their standards to essentially include farms that till skillfully, uh, like you do, incorporate a lot of organic matter into their soils and, and your soil organic matter, I'm assuming, has really gone up. I remember talking to you about that with your practices. So they've actually changed their standards really to hear that. Are, do you feel like we can just merge at this point? <sighs> I mean, I I have to admit that I haven't looked at their standards recently, but I I inherently struggle with movements that feel sort of top-down driven and I am much more drawn to those that feel like they're farmer driven and um, I feel much more represented by the Real Organic Project because I know how many farmers <laughs> are leading the organization and it it feels like an organization that's listening to farmers' needs and is responsive to farmers' needs because it's comprised of farmers. Whereas my interactions with Rock, um, they just, you know, they weren't as fruitful. And like, I never really heard back from them after, you know, putting in a, a good amount of time to try to give some really solid examples of our tillage use. And I mean, we went down to the nitty gritty of a bed and explaining exactly the way that it would get tilled depending upon what was growing in it for a year and then to not ever get any kind of constructive feedback on that was um you know disheartening i guess and doesn't doesn't lend me to want to <laughs> put more energy into that whereas if i give real organic project that kind of detailed feedback I'm going to hear back and I'm going to hear back quickly and I'm going to hear back in detail. And so for me, it's just a matter of where do I feel an affinity and where do I feel like an alignment with the folks in charge? That's not to say that Rock isn't going to be a great program for many farmers. It, it very well may be. I haven't really paid much attention, honestly, um, since I never, you know, when I never heard back, I just moved to my focus really on Real Organic Project, and that's that's where it stayed. You were also really vocal about the idea that this should be a whole farm standard, that we shouldn't certify just a portion of what the farm was doing and then leave, you know, the rest of the farm kind of, is it real organic or not? Um, would you talk a little bit about what you had seen that, um, you know, maybe ways that people were taking advantage of even their organic label in that way, where some of their crops weren't um, you know, if you, I think it was corn maybe. Um, so, yeah. so yeah. What are some of the examples um, as to why the whole farm standard is so important to you? When we sold at the farmer's market, which we don't do now because of COVID and just have a CSA, but you know, there were examples of a farm for 
one example in particular that was certified organic and grew mixed veggies, but had non-organic asparagus and then had non-organic corn. And not only was the corn not organic, it was also GMO. And, you know, I, I think that changed quickly. Um, I don't think the farm continued to grow GMO corn, but just having a small little sign next to the corn that says not organic, um, when customers have been familiar with that farm as an organic farm and the primary banner behind the farm, you know, is one that indicates that they're an organic farm, consumers aren't expecting there to be exceptions or, okay, we're organic except for this. Um, and hey, read between the lines or read the small print to figure out what's not organic. Um, feels disingenuous to the folks buying the food and also feels like an unfair situation for the other farmers because, you know, you're, we're all part of a broader farming community and, and consumers' trust is the most important thing that we have. And when we do anything that could compromise that or undermine it, it doesn't just hurt that farm, it has impacts on every other farm. So for me, it's important, um, you know, if you're growing all the other crops organically, <laughs> why not grow the asparagus and the corn organically? Because um, aren't we doing this out of a value system? frankly, which, you know, I know is like a, like a taboo phrase to even use, but isn't that a big part of why we do what we do? It's not just to get a higher price. It's, you know, not just to satisfy the consumer. It's also because this is the way we want to farm. So if we want to farm that way for all these other crops, surely we want to farm that way for every crop. Yeah, it kind of relates to the whole even split labels in the um, grocery store. You know, it's really confusing when we start looking at um, certifying anything that's processed because, um, yes. you know, even take Campbell's right now has an awesome line that comes from Scott Park of of tomatoes, right? And so, and that's rock certified. And um it's a wonderful opportunity for him to get to showcase what he does, get his stuff on the shelves because he's a wholesaler. And then at the same time, um, you know, we don't have an all organic brand. So it's, there's some greenwashing there and from Campbell's. So do you have any thoughts about how we, how we grow as a movement and juggle uh, creating opportunities for farms to get involved in, in some of these add on labels um, for brands to get involved in these add-on labels, but not allowing there to be greenwashing. I know there's no right or wrong here. Yeah, I mean, this is just my tiny two cents view on it. But, um, you know, once processed foods get into the mix, I think it's, it's, you've, it's almost more important at that point that, or it's every bit as important as it is with a raw product that there not be, in essence, like cross-contamination of the label because it's confusing to the consumer and it is a form of greenwashing, whether it's intentional or not. If you have, you know, 50% of your products uh, that are organic and 50% that aren't, like how many consumers think they walk into Whole Foods and get all organic food? 
you know, that number is still extremely high. Like it still blows my mind how many people can just look at a package and buy the coloring or the design or the words involved, make assumptions about how those ingredients are grown. And certainly when it is in a certain store that they associate with organic you know, products or even values. So I think it's super, super important that we not, you know, create a space for that kind of confusion. And what we do create then with those prepared and processed products is an incentive for folks to grow only organically and to process food that is, you know, organic in its ingredient list. Because, you know, the the market's already out there for people to have processed foods that don't meet that standard. But the Real Organic Project is an opportunity to provide a higher standard and encourage that growth in the marketplace towards the growing practices and values that I think you know most of us value and that bring us into this movement in the first place. Emily, a really funny thing came up with Naturaland, which was this concept of dying in beauty, which is where we could have a standard that's so strict that essentially we are meaningless, that we can't create change because enough people don't come with us. Do you feel right. like that's a problem that we can encounter? Um, or do you feel like uh, you said we can just, if we, if we, <laughs> we won't necessarily die in beauty because we can create marketing opportunities that, um, you know, there's opportunity there to really distinguish as the gold standard. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on dying in beauty? Cause it's a very real thing. I know that, um, uh, food, what, what was it called? The justice agricultural justice product project, project. AJP yep. Yep. that they may yep. have had, you know, that happen that they really had strict standards and it, it became so difficult to even, meet them. So I know that it can be a real concern. Uh, what are your thoughts yeah. on dying in beauty? I mean, I think it's it's a legitimate thing to think about. Absolutely. But I also think, you know, it kind of depends on um, like the number and that you're going for. Are we going for like 100% of certified organic operations? I don't think so. <laughs> um, because not 100% of organic operations, USDA certified organic operations will meet these standards um, or want to. And I think there are enough family scale and you know small to medium scale farms out there who inhibit and inhabit these values that will join the movement. And then there's the whole untapped branch of all the vast numbers of especially direct to consumer producers who, you know, are, are not that far away from being certified organic, but aren't for either philosophical reasons or access to certification or misconceptions about cost and paperwork um, or just being small and new and, you know, that being an extra challenge that we could reach out to. Um, to help join this movement. And I think, you know, it's like what you talked about earlier. Organic was intended for, you know, not to be a ceiling, but to be continuous improvement. And I think the Real Organic Project is in many ways 
like the branch where we are trying to seek continuous improvement. If we can't get it through the USDA level um, on the level that we want or to the extent that we want, then we've got to go off on our own and and create something that means more. And I think that's what, you know, I, I, I think that's what Real Organic Project is doing. And I do not think that there is um, the fear that there won't be enough growers out there, whether there will be enough super large growers. Yeah, that, that's a different matter. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's why this project got started in the first place. I think it got started by folks who were like, hang on, you know, we're all certified organic and we're all sharing this label, but we don't all do it the same way or share the same values. And, you know, some of those like obvious basic values of hydroponics and CAFOs were the foundation for the Real Organic Project. But as the movement grows, um, you know, I think there will be opportunities to differentiate ourselves further for biodiversity and, you know, in other ways that are, you know, hopefully not onerous to those folks who are already signed up, but can also be sort of that next step for that constant process of how can we be thinking of the ways that we do this, the impact that we have, and, you know, can we do it just a little bit more lightly on the earth. Yeah, I think I'd like to dive in a little bit on these new growers because um, we were both there not that long ago. We're not that old, Emily. Um, <laughs> we can relate, right? And there's there's so much, I think, that we can um, learn from, from the mistakes and the benefits of what the organic movement went through. Um, and I know that there's a whole lot of excitement around the word regenerative because you don't have to get certified and you can call yourself regenerative right from the beginning. And it took me eight years to actually own land and not have to deal with the three-year transition. And so there were bar real barriers and that happens to a lot of growers. And it was confusing. I think my plea right now is to say, please call yourself organic. You are part of this movement, even if certification isn't for you, of course, you can't put certified organic on any of your stuff, but I hope that you feel part of this organic movement um, because in my mind you are, and I was part of the organic movement um, before I was able to get certified. That's just one, one uh, problem that we have is, you know, the time that it takes to get certified. Um, but the other thing is that we really created standards as when I say we, I mean, as an organic movement for a reason. And um, I think the regenerative movement is going to evolve these young farmers that feel that they really are even beyond organic. They'll use the word regenerative to describe that um, because organic has failed them. And so I, I guess um, I feel there that so that's another issue is that, you know, if you're beyond organic and you're calling yourself regenerative and then there's no legal definition how are we going to maintain meaning in that word, which is something that organic has experienced anyway on a lesser extent, because there is at least nice. a, like you said, there's a floor for what organic means. Um, it, you know, Syngenta and, and Bayer Monsanto cannot be organic, but they are regenerative right now. So um, the third thing that I kind of want to address too is is just this idea that... Um, <laughs> The, the what is called the circular firing squad, right? Which is just keep quiet. And what we're seeing with the regenerative movement now, we just put out a letter 
um, raising concerns about the fact that $3 billion just went to climate smart, no-till chemical agriculture, essentially, by the USDA. And when we wrote about it, and we're creating a symposium about it, we're already getting, you know, that backlash from the regenerative community saying uh, that, you know, we're attacking regenerative and all this stuff. And the same thing happens anytime you go after the problems in organic, right? It's it's keep quiet. So how do we walk this really tricky line that really those regenerative farmers that are real regenerative, that, you know, they, they are our movement. We are one in the same. Uh, we're just using different words. Maybe start there. I, I presented you with a lot, but this is why we're having this conversation. It really isn't like my words better than yours. It's about what right. type of agriculture are we fostering in the future, either through the USDA or in the marketplace? We need to communicate what all these words mean. Yeah, I mean, it blows my mind that the USDA doesn't do more to reach out to these beginning farmers and particularly like, you know, local direct-to-consumer growers, because there are hundreds of them, thousands of them across the country. And it's like this absolutely untapped resource. And to me, you know, just as like a community organizing opportunity, there's so much potential for the USDA to reach out to these producers and find out, okay, what is the barrier? Is it philosophical? If it is, like, then take that to heart and figure out, you know, what the label needs to do to reflect their values. Is it, is it cost? Is it ease of finding a certifier? Is it, you know, moving around on land? And, you know, is there a way to address some of those issues? You know, we, they put a ton of money into transition and a potential transition label. How about putting like a fraction of that into money for beginning farmers who don't own land, but are leasing and are moving around? And is there a way, you know, to help bring them into the fold, especially if their goal is ultimately to buy land? Cause you know, that's just more producers that are part of this movement. So, I mean, to me, like there's first off, just an opportunity for the USDA to reach out and find out what are the barriers that are keeping all these producers from getting certified organic and and I think it's incumbent upon them to then try to make the changes that need to happen to bring folks into the fold and to make the label accessible for them so so that's the first bit but then then there's just the bit about you know maybe not feeling connected to the organic movement feeling like that's something that is you know a few generations before them and, you know, wanting to find a term or a word that they feel represents them, but doesn't come with all the baggage, both philosophical and then practical of, of certified organic. And I just had a call like two days ago with a student who's a student of organic farming who needed to interview a farmer and wanted to ask me about the word regenerative. So, I mean, you know, when when a student in southeastern Oklahoma is delving deep into the word regenerative and what does it mean and, you know, why aren't farmers getting certified organic, that regenerative has, you know, has come full circle. Like it, it is here, it is part of the conversation. And, you know, I mean, I gave the student examples of, you know, despite its problems, why certified organic is still meaningful. And that is, if again, I'm at the farmer's market where I'm in some sort of selling opportunity and a customer asks a vendor, are you organic? Are you certified? Are you organic? And they say, yeah, I am. 
And that's it. And they don't describe their practices and they don't kind of back up what it is that they do that is organic. Meanwhile, like I've been to their farm a few weeks before and, you know, they were spraying Roundup at that time. You know, is it, are they saying yes because they want to make the consumer happy? Are they saying yes because they don't understand what organic is? Um, but ultimately, it's a protection for me because why would I bother to go through all of, you know, the efforts and, and regulations to be certified organic if the word can just be anything to anybody, which is what we have with regenerative. So regenerative can mean whatever you want it to mean. Whereas, you know, we can debate the problems within organic, but there is at least still a federally regulated term about what that means. And it's a protection, not just for consumers, but I mean, I see it as much as a protection for farmers. So, you know, I've been to my local farmer's market and seen, you know, both the beyond organic terms used and the regenerative terms used. And, you know, part of me wants to go up to like these beginning farmers who've got these words regenerative and ask them like, are you okay? Like the way that you're using this word with big chemical agriculture that's spraying Roundup, like does that does that sit well with you to know that they think they're regenerative and you think you're regenerative? You know, isn't there a way that we could bring those folks into the real organic fold? And they're saying that they're regenerative back. This is coming full circle because they are no-till, right? And so that's that's what it means to them. No, they're not saying it because they're no-till. No, they're no, just... I mean, I mean the, the oh, chemicals, oh, that, you yeah. know, the chemical gotcha. ideas, right? Yeah. Well, they're saying they're, I mean, I think they're using the word regenerative because, you know, they knew they, they weren't going to be able to get organic. Like they weren't going to convert all of their agricultural production to organic. I don't know why not, but they, because they could. Um, but since they're not going to make that choice, then they've got to find some way to make what they do sexy and and feel like it's somehow part of the movement, even if it isn't. So they use the word regenerative. And, you know, it's like the word sustainable. Um, there are so many words that just become these, you know, catchphrases and they have their time and they live for however many years, five, 10, 20, however long. Um, and then they start to become meaningless because they have no, you know, regulated definition of what they are and anybody uses it. And so then a new word comes up. And so right now it's regenerative. Like this is the, the fad word of this period. And I'll bet you a million bucks if we talk in 10 years, it's going to be a different word. It's going to be a different story. But the meaning, the intent is the same. And that is to try to sell a story of, you know, good practices or environmental practices without having to actually explain what that is, without having to actually justify, you know, why we do what we do um, and to bring the consumer along in a one quick, easy word that that makes them feel good about buying that product. I was talking with someone who I thought would be really informed on this issue. She gives out grants. Um, for uh, good agriculture, you know, for climate reasons, um, private grants. And she said, you know, the, the thing that we're really excited about is that regenerative is 
outcome-based. It's not systems-based. Organic is systems-based. And I got really nervous because I understand as well as all the other organic farmers tend to understand how complicated the world is. And it's really difficult to take measurements that are meaningful and real and include the whole picture. So I'm wondering if you can maybe give a defense of why systems-based for organic is, is such a better way of of writing a standard as opposed to like, boy, your soil organic matter just went up this year. Um, you know, first of all, what plot did it come from on this confusing biodiverse, ecologically amazing farm, right? You're going to have a million different measurements. How deep did the soil go? And then, you know, all the things that you talked about with the carbon footprint of the inputs, I don't, I don't think that's included in soil organic matter if that's what you're going to base every decision on. You know, I think I feel like we need a defense for systems based regulation right now. Yeah, I mean, I think my first question, though, is how is it outcome based? Like, is that usually it's soil organic matter? It's like if your soil organic matter is going up, great. But is that one metric really (laughs) telling you very much at all? And I mean, I can tell you from my own experience taking soil tests. Like, it depends on which month you take it. It depends on the time of year. It depends on the climate outside. Like, you can get vastly different results in the same field if you take it in the hottest, driest time of the year versus, you know, the spring when things are starting to wake up. So, I mean, and that's just that one simple metric. Um, But, you know, if we reduce everything down to one little teeny tiny piece of the puzzle, soil organic matter, I mean... Imagine how many words they'd need if they took all of those pieces that are within the organic movement and within organic agriculture and and used every single one of those as an outcome-based metric. I mean, what if we started talking about biodiversity as a metric? What if we started talking about crop rotation as a metric? You know, there are just so many different ways that we could, I don't want to sound mean, but dumb it down to one outcome and really though that's what it is it's it's simplifying it to this almost meaningless point because you know the farm system is is so much more complicated than that i mean it kind of smacks a little bit of just the whole hydroponic conversation like oh we can just you know stick them in water and put in some inputs and replace what they would get from the soil and a you know water bath system and and there we go we're growing food so yeah i guess you know when when organic farmers start talking about the complexity of our systems that's when other people start shutting their eyes or rolling their eyes um and stop listening and they think that that's where we're getting all magical and you know woo woo and whatever but you know ecology, like the field of ecology, (laughs) it is extremely complicated. Nobody is trying to take an ecosystem and break it down into one metric, one outcome. And that's what the farm is. It's an ecosystem. And if you try to break it down into one thing, all you get is one thing but you don't get the whole ecosystem. And the bottom line is organic farmers see their farms as an ecosystem. They don't see it as a couple of ingredients.
I asked you about the code of silence in the last question. I asked you probably 10 questions in the last question. So let's go back to that one. Um, now that it seems to be clear that uh, the regenerative word is being affiliated with no-till chemical agriculture and the USDA is giving climate smart money to that, um, are there any lessons to be learned from the organic movement about um, what to do about it? Do we talk about this or do we keep quiet so that regenerative can still have meaning to those folks that, you know, feel that it's beyond organic? Oh, well, I mean, what we say has ultimately no bearing on that. Folks who want to use the word regenerative instead of organic, but who for all intents and purposes are growing organically, they've made that decision to share that word with big no-till chemical agriculture. So like that has nothing to do with what the real organic project does or doesn't do. They've that that cat's out of the bag. The uh, horse is out of the barn, <laughs> whatever you want to use. But calling out this greenwashing of the word regenerative for herbicide farming is absolutely necessary because otherwise you know, in some respects, those small scale farmers who are using the word regenerative at their farmers markets then are like this face for what regenerative might mean to some consumers. And it's the big chemical ag who are benefiting off of their work. So if anything, it's time to call out the mixed use of the word and the misuse of the word by big chemical agriculture and and say, you know, is this really what we mean when we say regenerative? Do we really mean tons of herbicide use? Because I don't think we do, and I don't think a lot of consumers think that. So, you know, it's it's not about like staying silent or or calling out what's there. What's there is already there. Are we going to talk about it? Are we going to you know try to provide clarity and? and meaning and definition or are we are we just gonna you know sit back and and watch it happen i mean i i think the bottom line is the types of farmers that want to be a part of the real organic project are in some ways activist farmers like because they do this not because it's a way to get rich but because they believe in it and if you believe in it and that's a big part of what gets you out in the field every day, then you're going to want to stand behind things that are questionable or fight those things that are questionable and stand behind your values. Like you're not going to want to just remain silent because otherwise, you know, it doesn't feel as valuable when you do go out in the field and you start to feel like this weird confusion of if, what movement you're a part of. So. I think the real organic farmers that that want to call this out are doing that partly because, you know, that's what got them into farming in the first place and keeps them farming because we we do this because we believe in it and we want we know our consumers believe in it, too. And we want to be sure that there is clarity and there isn't greenwashing and there isn't confusion and people can make their choices not based on a nebulous word, but based on real practices and real relationships. Hmm. I remember uh, talking to Lindsay, Lindsay Lusher Shoot, and I know you know her from your work at National Young Farmers Coalition. And I said, well, we, we do get some young farmers that say, well, I just 
I just want to farm. You know, I don't want to be political. And uh, her response was, well, you don't farm in a vacuum, (laughs) you know, (laughs) what, what thoughts do you have for farmers that really just feel like all they want to do is farm and not really get too involved in these issues? Do you have thoughts for them? Yeah, I mean, one, I respect and understand that. And I don't think there are varying degrees of getting involved. But if you're doing this, why are you doing it? And if there are some values behind it, then if you're not working to uphold those values, you're kind of banking on somebody else working to uphold those values. So, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of time or maybe you don't have a lot of interest in that at the time, like for the moment, great. But like support those who are helping to create a marketplace and a consumer landscape that, you know, makes it possible for them to do what they do. And maybe at some point in their careers, they'll have more time and they'll, they'll feel more of a draw and it will speak to them more. And in the meantime, you know, support, support the folks that are out there trying to make sure that this is, this is a fair marketplace and a fair movement for those of us who um, are trying to keep meaning to the standards and trying to uphold them and make them as strong as they can be rather than, you know, whatever anybody wants them to be. Yeah, I do have so much um, empathy for those early years. Um, It was such a struggle. And, you know, often we have little kids at the same time, you know, when you're uh, trying to create a career and and build a business and build a family. And, you know, if you're a first generation farmer, it's it's a lot. And so um, I guess I would just say, listen to the podcast and become as informed as you can on these issues, because you're out in the field and you've got some time uh, while you're weeding, and <laughs> you can keep your mind busy. Um, but I, I feel well, and this is like where the farm bill comes in too. Like, I mean, I have felt for a super long time. Like, I, I really believe that organic certification should be free for beginning farmers. Like, literally, for that whole period of the USDA's term of what a beginning farmer is, those first 10 years, maybe up to a certain income threshold. Um, and then it could be like, you know, on a sliding scale from there. But the whole sound and sensible program that the USDA did for certification could be revamped and looked at in, you know, sort of the beginning farmer lens. And if we can make it free and we can get certifiers, accessible and out there to growers throughout the country no matter where they farm and you know kind of lower the fear factor around what it takes to get certified organic i think we'd get a lot more beginning farmers who would do it but to me this is where the community organizing and the outreach part comes in from the usda which i know is a tall order for a government agency But I mean, that's their community, right? Their community are farmers and like, let's get out there and let's find a way to get these folks who are already growing organically, who don't have to be convinced um, into the system and into the label and get them counted and part of the movement. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, thank you so much. Um, I know we keep coming back to you uh, because you're so eloquent and informed on these issues. You figured out how to, during that crazy time, that I was talking about building your farm business, you figured out how to serve on the NOSB, you give so much back to the community. And um, 
we're going to keep coming back to you because unfortunately you're you're a real <laughs> voice in all of this, like it or not. So thank you for your time today. Um, I appreciate thank you so you. much. I'm just a talker. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Good. We'll keep talking to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, share the link with your friends, and leave us a rating and a review so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when you'll hear directly from me about why the Real Organic Project is more important now than ever as we learn more about the winners of the USDA's $3.1 billion in funding for climate-smart agriculture. We're tackling this subject as it relates to the rising popularity of the word regenerative in conjunction with chemical no-till agriculture. Our upcoming symposium is this coming Sunday, the 26th, and Sunday, March 6th. All ticket holders will also get recordings of the event, so please join us. You can learn more at realorganicsymposium.org, and we'll see you there.